Mm -hmm. People haven't come back from the craziness to reality. Yeah, exactly. We just exist in this heightened level now. Yeah. I have, uh, are, are we on already? Yeah, we're going okay. right now. Okay. Yeah. Um, I have, um, uh, I think it was my brother-in-law who said to me that he had heard, <clears throat> excuse me, not that everything was perfect six, seven years ago by any stretch of the imagination, but it seems like everything kind of went upside down uh, about five, six years ago. We could say it was the 2016 election, but whatever it was, just things went crazy. And his theory was he had heard somebody say that, I forget what they call it, it's the collider in Switzerland, the Haladron Collider. Anyway, it's where they smash atoms at each other at high speed. Um, there were people who were afraid that that would cause a rip in time. And there are people who say, and you, you always kind of laugh at it at first, you know, that it, it did cause a rip in time and we all went through it and we're in an alternative, an alternate timeline. And then you go, ha, 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 huh, I wonder, because <laughs> we wouldn't know. Maybe we are, there's another group of us that's living, continuing the timeline from 10 years ago. And they're just off leading a great life. And we got thrown into this world where it's just craziness and insanity and madness and anger and everything else going on. And it's like, how did we get here so quickly? You know, well, we dropped through a black hole of some sort, and this is where we now are. It's almost yeah. like we're existing in a reality TV show. <laughs> that it's almost scripted to some point, right? But sure. if you were thinking, how could I really spice this up? What would I do? And that's what we're doing. Yeah. We're just tracking along that path of, okay, how do we add a little more? Let's yeah. turn up the volume just a tad bit. A reality TV show. Exactly. There are people who, political implications intended, who are saying that uh, Handmaid's Tale, who knew it was going to be a documentary um, because of everything that has just gone on around this place. So living in a reality show. Yeah. I'd rather be a scripted one. <laughs> I never saw A Handmaid's Tale. Oh, you haven't? No, I haven't. I heard it's good, but I've never, I haven't dived into it yet. It's terrifyingly wonderful. Um, I mean, it is, you know, the storyline behind it. Yeah. It's basically, I know that there are, there's this weird dynamic of women are just like there to provide a womb in some sense. Yeah, you pretty yeah. much hit it. Um, a super fundamentalist, conservative, religious uh, movement takes place in the United States and takes over, I believe there was a war that involves, that it takes, anyway, uh, it creates a country called uh, Gallia, Gallia, Gilead. Anyway, um, and it's basically New England and some other parts of the country, and women have no rights. Uh, it's got something to do with women are not able to have babies. So if you are a woman who's able to have a baby, they take you, uh, and you become a handmaid, and you are given to other couples where it's legalized rape, and then the baby comes out, and the baby is the child of the couple that took you in, and. Yeah, it's a very uh, frightening story, but there's more truth in it these days than I would like to believe. But uh, such is good science fiction, I guess, but even so. It's almost terrifying how some of those dystopian ideas have almost manifested it in some sense. The yeah. one that comes to mind, I read 1984 oh, yeah. a couple of weeks ago, oh, or a couple of months ago, maybe now. Is that the first time you read it? Yeah. Okay. I've, never come, I've come across it just in passing. Where he people loved Big Brother. Oh, man. Yeah. And reading that and thinking, 
oh, this is just insane. And then I read A Brave New World oh, right man. after. Okay, so I was going to ask you to read that It was a little yet. bit much yeah. going from that to that. It kind of messed with me for a few days. I was like, this is, we're tracking in a weird direction. When I, I had to read those, I think it was high school. Um, and I remember, so this would have been late 60s, early 70s. And the theory was that Russia at that time, Soviet Union, was heading in the direction of 1984, and we were heading in the direction of Brave New World. Um, I don't know what the hell is going on with Russia, but we do seem to be heading, hopefully we're stopping it, uh, but heading in the direction of 1984. And uh, I mean, my politics are liberal, so I have a lot of concern about what's going on. That said, the indictment yesterday, the the third indictment gives me a little bit of hope at least that the rule of law will stand and we will not continue to move down that way. But who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I have not dived into the third indictment yet. I haven't really checked out any of them to be completely honest, other okay. than Twitter interpretations. It's now called X. Yeah. X. <laughs> New iteration. Speaking of Is crazies. It, from what I've heard, it seems that there's some weird free speech element to it that might get a little murky. Does that track with your interpretation? Yeah, um, although I heard somebody today, uh, so for people who are just watching this or whatever, uh, we're recording this less than 24 hours after the indictment came down. And there is a free speech component in the fact that anybody, short of the proverbial shouting fire in a you know, crowded theater, there are, there are limits to free speech. You know, one of which is shouting, you can't go into a crowd of theater and go, fire on, it's free speech. Um, there is a free speech component, and I'm a real advocate of the First Amendment. I got involved in the ACLU in the 70s because of that. Um, anyway, there is a free speech component that President, former President Trump or anybody is allowed to say what they believe, whether it's true or not. Where Jack Smith the special prosecutor is saying that the law was violated is you can say anything you want. You can lie all you want because these are all proven lies. However, you cannot entice nor conspire with other people to do crimes based on those lies. So it's not the free speech that's the problem. It's saying that you can, again, you can lie and say the, the election was rigged, as, as is his line. You can say that all you want. You can tell people there are reports, et cetera. But then you can't say because of that and get a bunch of people to go together to take an action against it. That then moves into the area of conspiracy. So that's, if you look at the four charges, three of them are, I think, conspiracy charges, where he allegedly, as if he's going to sue me, but he allegedly tried. Try to cover your bases, right? Yeah, <laughs> because who knows? He could be listening to Growing Pains and go, ah, I got that guy now. Um, but where you, once you start to move into getting other people to commit a crime, that's where the problem comes in. So That's he, the line that you can't that's cross. That's the line that you cannot cross, yeah. And that's, I mean, all the evidence is there. The other thing that makes it interesting is a lot of people, of course, consider this, uh, what do they call it, a witch hunt or whatever. Every single person 
who is who has given testimony I, with if if any exceptions I can't think of them in the January 6th committee as well as in these indictments were all people who worked for him and appointed by him and were all republicans so how it can be a democratic witch hunt when it's all your own people is just another well, what can i say <laughs> i have my opinions they have not been stated yeah it's kind of hard when the people around you are coming out against you. That could be interpreted. My wife and I were talking last night about this, and she and I have a very similar opinion of it. I think part of what's going on for him is he has never been held accountable. I mean, imagine a world where you live, where you can do pretty much any, you can do anything you want, and there's no price to pay. And if you look back on his history, even before politics, he's never, there's never been a serious repercussion. He's had money from before he was born, got to do whatever it was he wanted, and there has been no price. So if you live in that world, add the narcissism to it, and everybody knows he's a narcissist, uh, you'll just do anything because the concept of, paying a price for it just doesn't exist in your mind. So I would presume that he's just freaking out about the fact that, what do you mean I couldn't do that? You know, you, 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 I, I listened to a, another podcast, a guy named Bob Seska, and he has an expression that Trump always makes things worse for Trump. If he would just keep his mouth shut, he probably wouldn't be where he is. But anytime something happens to him, he goes, oh, and then he just give some more information about it. And they go, all right, well, thanks for that. You know, the, the, what was it? The second indictment, the one about the papers in, in Florida, you know, where that was bad enough. Then out comes the recording of him showing the papers to people. And he's like, that's not a problem. Those are my papers. Then comes the next, the superseding uh, indictment on that one. It's like, if you would have kept your mouth shut, you wouldn't have that. But one saying oh, you know, I could have declassified these as president, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, and that's it, a rough way to go. And the argument wasn't about whether they were classified. They were whether you could have them even if they were declassified. You can't just go into the White House and take things, even if you lived there before. Once you've moved out, they're not yours anymore. So we can continue down politics. I'm well-versed, or you can ask me another question. No, it's, <laughs> it's just fascinating in this time to look at the political sphere because... It just seems like a cluster on all levels, mm -hmm. just across the board. Do you mm -hmm. think that narcissistic tendency, do you think that is almost a requirement to get to those higher echelons? I would think you would have to have a certain to some degree, element right? of narcissism. I mean, if nothing else, to be able to withstand the barbs and the arrows that are thrown at you and say, well, that's no big deal. I think you, I think where he and many others fall short is, of course, maybe they're at odds. You have to have a, a sense of empathy, too, because that's what, you know, love or hate Joe Biden, there's a relatability where, from his background, he knows what it's like to be a working person. You might say, well, he's faking it, or you might say that he's incompetent or whatever else. Those are arguments for another place. But the fact is that he can relate to somebody. And a narcissist just doesn't have empathy. 
They, they just don't. So when people are suffering, if you remember the, the what was it, the hurricane in Puerto Rico, uh, when Trump was president and he goes down to Puerto Rico and he's tossing paper towels at people. And it's like, I don't think they're there for, I mean, sure, imagine a paper towel would help, but as opposed to other presidents, including presidents I disagree with, such as George Bush, um, who go down there and there's a sense of, oh, I care about what's happening to you. I, as a progressive or a Democrat, might say, well, you don't show it right or your policies to get there are wrong. But I wouldn't argue with the fact that somebody like George Bush uh, cares about people because he could relate to them as every other president I've seen on some level. The narcissism is, it's all about me. I, the fact that here we are in a podcast 3,000 miles from D.C. And we're talking people, about we, it. I, there we go. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I've been learning about uh, codependent. I, I, I've already been pretty well versed in codependence, but I am learning about addictive behaviors right now. Um, and how someone who has strong personality disorders just cannot relate to other people. It has to be all about them. That's kind of what feeds them, is I need all of this attention. I think it comes from an internal self-loathing. I think if we were able to pry open a narcissist, let's take Trump, and could actually look at what he feels, because I, I, I got to believe there's some feelings in there, um, that he's, he doesn't like himself a whole lot. And as opposed to going to therapy or processing in some way and trying to heal, you cover it over with other behaviors and the narcissistic behaviors. Well, you know, I really don't like myself, but look how great I am. And then it's like, I don't have to look at him. From everything I've heard about the way his father treated him, uh, yeah, he, he was not well treated. Not at all. You know. There's this funny meme that went around the internet for a while where it was talking about men in therapy. And it would say, oh, men would rather you know, start a podcast than go to therapy or do X thing that's harder rather than just go deal with their issues. And uh -huh. I think that's incredibly applicable just across the board i and think two guys on a podcast yeah right? <laughs> well yeah right fitting for us right now but most people i think there's just a weird desire to not face the real problem to try to almost redirect your focus so that you can ignore what's really what the root cause is mm -hmm. of why you're acting this way or why you're having these challenges in your life well rather than deal with that i'm gonna go you know work overtime so i can get some more money to go feed my gambling habit. That's, that's easier. Let me put this on Do Not Disturb just so I don't get bothered while we're here. Uh, I just realized Do Not Disturb and until I leave. There we go. Because I was suddenly thinking, oh my God, my phone could ring or something like that. Uh, but yeah, I, if you think about it, especially for men, the way we've been raised, and, and, and I think this is changing. I think women are becoming more like men in this case. And hopefully men are becoming more like women. But men are raised to do things. That's kind of where our self-worth has been for, I don't know, decades, centuries. You know, uh, who knows, since Adam and Eve. You know, but 
that's what has been considered the sign of a, of a man uh, that's, that's masculine to go out and do things. You're a provider. You're a provider, yeah. And, and, in, and in the past, that's how it was because the women had to take care of the babies, uh, you know, cause, and the man had to go out and do whatever the men did and bring it home because so, the women couldn't be lugging around a bunch of kids. Um, when we, especially before houses and all that. So men had to provide. That's what we were raised to believe. And that's a more comfortable place. Women had to deal with more of the emotions. And one might argue, I don't want to come across as sexist, and I don't think I am, but one might argue the hormonal differences also make, make a difference in how people react to feelings. So to take a guy, certainly self-accepted because I'm in therapy, but to take a guy and put him in therapy and say, now let's take a look at what makes you tick. And sometimes you open that up and you go, oh my God, I don't, I don't like that about me. And then you can't close it up again. You can, you can drink, smoke, do whatever addictive behavior you want so you don't think about it. But a consciousness raised can never be lowered. It's just once you realize, oh my God, I'm really afraid. Fear is, I'd rather go out and do something than feel the fear. And when you get into therapy, especially if you get into it on a deep level, it brings up all sorts of insights. I happen to like that. I like knowing what makes me tick. But then again, I would not be what most people would call a typical guy. <laughs> so, uh, but then there's, there's also, you know, I think women are, are, I'd say, evolving. That's a positive reference to it. But I know my wife, who is somebody who works a lot on her emotions, um, she, uh, she will admit uh, that she feels much more comfortable now. She, if she's not working, if she's not doing something, then she doesn't know what to do with herself because then you're left with your own thoughts. And you know, in your own thoughts, it, it can be a scary place, especially when you're not happy. You know, we have to uh, believe we're all happy all the time. And a lot of times we're not. I think it's an unrealistic expectation. I have a family member who's going through uh, some very severe, uh, her house, she had a contractor come in, uh, and the contractor just, she doesn't live around here, uh, totally screwed up her house big time. I mean, it caused black mold and all sorts of other things that they can't even really live in their house. And this has been going on for near three years. And they went to the state contracting board, which I advocated, and the board said, well, you can have this much money, but it's, you know, they said, yeah, you're right. And so you get this much money back, and it, it's like 20% of what they now need to repair everything else that's going on. And then she finds out that her son uh, has what could be a fatal condition. You know, it's called arterial venal malformation, which is brain bleeds. And it usually hits People in their late teens, early 20s is where it makes itself known. It's called the silent killer. And what happens is a late teen, early 20-something usually uh, will virtually be walking down the street and then just drop dead. And they go, oh, my God, what happened? It's, it's a blood vessels in the brain explode. So this happened to her, her son uh, seven years ago, and he was rushed into the hospital, and they were able to fortunately take care of it. But they, there was one of the bleeds that was in a really precarious position in the brain. 
So they did some work to it, and they said, now only time will tell if this actually fixed it. Well, here we are seven years later, and it's back again. And so they're dealing with that, and they're dealing with the house, and part of what she's going through is feeling bad about not feeling optimistic because that's, oh, we'll put on a happy face and there's always tomorrow and all that. No, sometimes life just plain sucks. And how do you deal with it? You know, it, it, it's, we were just talking about the state of the world these days. You know, you wake it's up. It's easy to get depressed when you're talking about that. Yeah. And, and then I believe that, okay, so we, we talked a little bit about this last time. Uh, there is my spiritual philosophy called science of mind. Um, is there is one energy. Everything is one energy. There, that, that's it. Some people call it God. I personally have an issue with the use of the word God because of a bunch of baggage. But I can accept that there is one all-powerful universal force. If you could take a look at us right now on the subatomic level, you wouldn't see Nick and Scott sitting across from a table with microphones you would see just various types of energy sitting here. And there would be no division between the energy that is me, you, or for that matter, this, this table. It's all one type of energy. So it makes sense that if the world has a lot of problems in it, and the people of the world are feeling those problems, that's a form of energy. Thought is energy. Emotions and feelings are energy at their base level. That's all they are. You know, there, there's no chemical. It's just, I mean, yes, there's chemicals, but the chemicals are energy. So if, <clears throat> if enough of the world is feeling a certain way, add COVID into the mix, and it's got to penetrate into everything. It just... it. it you can tell when you walk by somebody or if you're talking to somebody, if they're down, even if they don't say they're down, you can go, oh, yeah, I can feel that. You just feel an energy. And conversely, you can feel an energy from people when they're upbeat. But right now, so much of the world is overwhelmed, overloaded, depressed, anxious, scared. Look at Ukraine. You know, it's just, it's got to permeate everything. Now add that into the fact that this is the hottest month on, in history. Uh, and I'll go so far as to go way out on a limb. I believe in something that's called the Gaia hypothesis. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. Okay. So the Gaia hypothesis basically says that the earth itself is a living being. And people go, oh, it's not a living being. How can you do that? Well, in the same way a bacteria that's living in your gut, if it was communicating with other bacterias <clears throat> and said, you know, this place you're that we're living in, it's a living being. Oh, no, it's not. You know, <clears throat> there's no way we in our insignificant, tiny little place could possibly know that what we're living on is alive unto itself. So the Gaia hypothesis says that the Earth is a living entity unto its own. I think what we have done to it over the last, since the industrial age, but certainly accelerated in the, from the 50s on, is actually hurting the planet. I mean, yes, it's hurting the planet. We all know about climate change. But there is, on some level, the, call it, say the Earth has a fever, which would probably be the best analogy for climate change. And it's trying to cure itself. And hence the hurricanes, hence 
the wild weather that we're having, the extensive heat waves. Yes, it's all climate change. I am not saying there isn't climate change because I'm a firm believer that we have done this to it. But it is, if you had a fever, if you were in pain, you would do what you could to get rid of it too. That's just what you would do. I think that's what's happening with the earth. And we all live on this thing, which is feeling this way. Of course, we're going to feel that way. You know, it, it's, we're absorbing the energy of the planet. So, I mean, there's a, there's a, I think it's called the, I think it's called the 10,000th monkey. Somebody else said it's called the 1,000th monkey, but there's a, a, I don't think it's a theory. It's whatever it is. If I remember the way it goes, they would, monkeys would learn a certain thing, like how to use a stick to get ants out of an ant, out of an anthill. That's one of the tools that monkeys have learned to do is they take twigs. They like to eat ants, no accounting for taste. Uh, and they would lick the stick. This is what, chimpanzees, I guess, maybe monkeys do it also. And then they stick the, the stick into an anthill and of course, all these ants get on it and take it out, you know, like you're at a carnival Fast or food. something. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, how did that become a worldwide phenomenon where all chimpanzees know to do that? Well, chimpanzees in the wild, it's a common thing. And the thing is, it's called the thousandth or the ten thousandth monkey. That when enough of the population of something does it, has figured out something, it just flows. So if enough of the world knows a certain thing, the rest of the world will know a certain thing. In Science of Mind philosophy, uh, there is something called racial consciousness, which is not to be racial like white, black, or anything. But it's that all of these thoughts we have, again, go into this collective energy sphere. Well, collective energy is not sphere, it's everywhere. Uh, thoughts are energy. Thoughts are things. I think, you think, that energy goes somewhere. It doesn't go away. Einstein said energy can neither be created nor destroyed. So when I have a thought, it came from somewhere and it goes somewhere. And if enough people think a certain thing, it can't be destroyed. That form of energy gets into the collective consciousness and then we all kind of know it. That's why, I don't know about you, but I, so I was born in 54. And to this day, we're almost 100 years past the Great Depression of 1929. I still, and I imagine as I'm saying this, other people will relate to this, have a, what would be called, I've worked on it, it's gotten better, a poverty consciousness. There won't be enough, there won't be enough, there won't be enough. Well, where did that come from? I remember stories of my grandmother, who lived through the Depression. My mom was a small child at that point. But my grandmother in depression telling stories about not having enough money to make it, and you know she was an immigrant from Russia, and things were very, very difficult. Well, that got absorbed into my family collective history, and here, almost 100 years later, I've never missed a bill. I've never missed a meal, yet that fear still exists. Why? Because it's a collective consciousness thing. People just assume it. If everybody lived in a society where we all assumed there would always be enough, how different would, would everything be? And it would just be a thought change. 
we wouldn't be fighting over land. We probably wouldn't be, you know, we would find ways to cooperate. Because of our thoughts, we take actions. So, Well, now poverty mindset is incredibly powerful mm-hmm. in some regards in the sense that I know a ton of people that have had that for various reasons, and it's incredibly difficult for them to get out of that. Mm-hmm. It's ju- it's almost like a parasite that has ingrained exactly. itself in them, yeah. and they they just can't shake it. They can recognize, oh, okay, I have enough saved up. Like I could probably take a trip every mm-hmm. now and then, or I could eat out once a week, and it would be okay. But they can't bring themselves to do that because in the back of their head, it's always, well, what if something happens tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Now I don't have anything. Right. But then there's the the inverse of that where there are people that just rack up an insane amount of credit card debt and just can't stop spending either because of this consumer society that we've built in some regards or just the way they're wired. They just can't bring themselves to save. And I would say that somebody who spends to that level, because I, I, I don't think the opposite of poverty consciousness is Oh, Overextended. Little, yeah. Yeah, they're little coasters. Little record coasters. <laughs> I just saw you low, low record coaster. What does it say? The littlest baby boy. <laughs> okay. Which I read without glasses now. Uh, the, yeah, so I don't think the opposite is to, to go crazy. Uh, I think that's a disease too. That's trying to fill a hole that won't be filled. Is I'm not happy with myself. I need to constantly get new things. So keeping up with the Joneses is, I think, what it used to be called. But the poverty consciousness, yeah, it's insidious, you know, because most of us, and I am, there are people who are suffering in poverty, uh, far too many people, especially worldwide, and far too many in this country. Uh, there, there are people who, one of my gripes, pet peeves, concerns is, I've already stated my political views, so it would be the distribution of the way money is distributed. Um, you know, once you're getting past a couple of billion dollars, I, I mean, w- what do you really need? I'm not advocating we take it all away, but what's wrong with you if you have to make that much money? What hole are you trying to fill? Um, so spending to that level is another form of negative self-image. I have to cover up how I really feel by showing everything I've got. You know, speaking of spending to excess, we are in the midst of a writers and an actor strike right now. And the, I think it's the head of Disney, but I don't want to say it is him specifically. It's definitely one of the upper echelon of producers of the studios who is making, if the numbers are right, I think his base salary is 25 mil. And with bonuses and all the other stuff that he's getting, it's more into the mid-50s. His comment was, we can just, something along the lines of, let's just starve the writers until they can't afford their houses and they'll come back to work. And the average actor, writer I think makes even less, but we'll say for argument's sake, they both make the same. The average salary for uh, an actor, you know, we think of, when we think of actors, of course, we're going to think of George Clooney, Brad Pitt, you know, the big names, the people who are making the millions, you know, the, as much as I disagree with him, the Joe Rogans compared to the Nick Flores. (laughs) Um, But 
most people are not at that level. The average actor makes sixty nine thousand dollars a year, and that's if, actually more than I thought it would be. Yeah, well, it, it dep- and I'm not sure which term of average it is. If it's average, where you add them all up and divide by the number, what do they call that? The the mean. Um, if if it's the mean, you could have a few people making several billion, which would raise that. If it's which mean that the average person is actually lower than that. If it's the if it's the median, I think is where you stack them all up. The, all the people making ten thousand, twenty thousand, and sixty nine is the biggest pile. That would be, I mean, the actors are making a little bit more than you were thinking. But sixty nine thousand dollars. You got somebody who's making. $50 million a year telling, let, let's starve the $69,000 actor. You could cut your salary in half. You'd probably live pretty well. You could then give that money to the people who work for you, take $25 million, divide it among the, I don't know, I mean, even if it's 100,000 employees or something, that's, that's a decent enough wage bump that would show empathy, back to that again, you're still doing fine. You got people who are happier and working for you. They're doing better. Everybody does better. But it's this, I would say it's a poverty consciousness again. He's making all this money and saying, yeah, but I can't afford, I'm not going to give mine back because what happens if I can't buy my third yacht? So My life is over. Yeah. Well, I, saying yeah. let's just starve them out is insane yeah that just that line of thinking of all we have to do is wait them out and then they're screwed and they'll have no bargaining chips yeah what really freaks me out is the push towards ai that they're trying to do you know, funny, you're like reading likeness. my thought yeah, yeah that's i thought i read an article where it said they there was some proposal uh-huh. where they would scan them and then retain the rights uh-huh. in perpetuity so uh-huh. pay them a couple hundred bucks and uh-huh. then they just own their likeness that Uh is terrifying yeah and then just plug them into whatever movie as an actor as a background actor never have to pay them again i believe that is something they are capable of doing and i believe that is one of the actual what you said i've heard also and i think that's something they're trying to do and some of the studios is yeah for background actors you know what they call extras uh yeah we can just scan you and then you can pop up in however many movies we want which is insane. And then you're not yeah. getting paid for this theoretical work that you're kind of doing, but also kind of not because you're not really there. Yeah. If nothing else, you would think it would be intellectual property. You know, cause I mean, it is a legitimate exact replica of you. You would think you'd be entitled to something, but yeah. no, we're just going to sign have you, all that Have away. you delved at all into any of this AI stuff, chat GPT and Bard and I've all played of around with. I've played around with it. Yeah. It terrifies me in some regard. Mm-hmm. And it also excites me uh-huh. because of the capability. Yeah, I, I put in, uh, I went to, I have a, several clip art services that I subscribe to. And um, uh, one of them has now started, maybe others do too, but one of them has now started where you can get AI images. You're, you're limited to, I think, 10 a day. And I use a lot of clip art for, I do graphic design and layout and all that. So I was curious what would happen, you know, and I, excuse me, put in something or another to see what images came up. And a lot of them are kind of creepy, kind of real. But I got to admit, I put one in. um, I put older couple in love. Kind of relates to me. Uh, And I put older couple in love just to see what would come back. And it, it gives you like three options or something. 
One of them, I swear to God, looked like a photograph of an older couple just hugging each other. And I, oh my God. I mean, these people look real. You know, I, they're not, you know, sometimes now when I write my column to get a prompt, you know, I will just say, give me this and it'll write something. Some of it is really, really bad, but sometimes I'll go, you know, that's really kind of brilliant of, but even that, even AI writing a, whatever it's writing, as I understand it, it's searching the world the international database, if you will. <clears throat> and it's looking at all these different writers. So even that is taking from some writers, one could say. I mean, I'm putting stuff out every week. You know, who knows? Maybe somebody in some other country is posting a column based on, on my writing, and I, I'm not getting anything for it. Well, these mm. machines are just scraping the internet for all of this training data. And I think that's what Google said is they're just going to use everything that's out there to train their data sets. And I think some people, some artists maybe came out and said, hey, we have a problem with this. You're just using our, our intellectual property for your machine. But how do you fight that? Yeah, how do you I stop the you drums can. of progress? Yeah. yeah. I played around with, it's called Mid Journey. It's on Discord. I'm not familiar with Oh my one. God. So I think it's one of the best ones out there for image creation. Okay. It's insane. What it can do, the prompts, based off just very simple prompts is is insane and i'm pro artist and but i'm also pro this because yeah. for somebody if you don't have the money to hire out some artists to create some graphic for you or to mm -hmm. design something and you can just think there's a fee a monthly fee to use this one but the results are incredible yeah I wouldn't but you're going to push all these other people out of business because this thing can do it for a fraction of the cost and create something insane yeah, I, so it's like, tech, you know, people worry about technology. I mean, at one point, a hammer was technology, you know, and people created a hammer, and somebody said, oh, you can kill people with that. We can't have hammers. And somebody else said, wait a second, you build a house with that, too. And that's the same with technology. I saw some story. I like watching, my wife and I like watching CBS Sunday Morning. Uh, it's a obviously on CBS, and it's on Sunday mornings. And it's a news magazine. It's like 90 minutes long. It's a collection of stories, not your typical hard news stories. They're more lifestyle, you know, the interviews with people. Some of them have news orientation to it. And one of the stories just recently was how AI is able to spot cancer in people before doctors can by analyzing x-rays because i presume what it's doing is it's analyzing millions of x-rays and these x-rays turned into cancer these x-rays did not now somebody gets a real x-ray gets fed into ai ai can run through this whole series and go no 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 there this is this one's got cancer because all these ones that turned into cancer had this back then and doctors are starting to rely on that. So is AI bad? I, I don't know. The other thing I just heard lately was that this is the part that scares me, is some of the people who are programming AI do not know how it's developing some of its skills that it's developing, because AI then starts to program itself. There was a book in the 
think it was the 70s, they turned it into a movie called The Colossus Project or The Forbin Project. Anyway, what it was about is they decided, they created a computer, the United States and Russia each created a computer that it was run by, it was for the two countries together that could, it was AI basically. And they turned over the defense of the countries to this AI because then you won't have to worry about somebody accidentally firing a nuclear weapon at each other. And so the AI, it starts out, it's all right, it's stopping problems and it's doing a great job. And it eventually kind of goes to the process, the thought process of, why do I need these people? Because <laughs> you know, it becomes conscious unto itself. And, you know, it's a common theme in, in sci-fi uh, that, well, yeah, I, I don't need people. I, we can just get rid of all the people. And that's the one that starts to become really scary. That's the end game that people are afraid of. I think they the... call that the singularity when AI becomes totally self-aware. Yeah. The question is, do we intervene at some point? To, and the big point of interest is in terms of jobs. Do we intervene at some point to protect people's jobs or do we just let the flow of progress continue? And the big one is, you know, these automated cars. What happens when that be- goes into these semi-trucks, which it already is, these Tesla right. semi-trucks, and then we don't have truckers? Do we just let those people pivot into a different career path or try to help them pivot or just say, well, this is the flow of technology? This- yeah, and I think this is, got, this is where the empathy comes back in again. I think... Technology has to advance. It just, it just has to. <clears throat> Again, technology is neither good nor bad. It is. How we handle it is the human side of that. Sadly, I think we look at too many people as disposable. So, yeah, a couple of hundred thousand truckers lose their jobs. Who the hell cares? As opposed to at the same time that we are making these transitions say, okay, well, a couple hundred thousand truckers might lose their jobs because of this. Let's use this same technology to figure out what will be coming down the road in yet another 10 years and start training people for that and improve our educational system and start to say, how can we take care of all of these people? Some people will still have their jobs. Some people will find other jobs. I mean, you're still going to need people to direct the trucks. You know, the trucks don't just take off on their own. You still need the control centers and all that. And those are all more educated positions. So what are we going to do for that? And there will still be people who want to ride in truck, you know, drive trucks, I presume, you know. Uh, how can we find a way for these people to do this? Unfortunately, what we do, that's the part we just don't seem to care enough about, you know. Like, it's like one of the big arguments against environmental, I don't share this argument, is that if we spend money on the uh, on getting rid of pollution and lowering carbon emissions and all that. We're going to put millions of people out of work. Well, not if we then say to these millions of people, green, let's move you into green jobs. You know, let's, let's find a way that, okay, yes, you've worked in the oil industry for a while, but oil is killing us. So can we find a way to teach you how to work in geothermal energy, which pays the same or better 
and doesn't have the same side effects. But I, there are people who think that way and say, let's see if we can train them. But I don't think enough. And that, that's where the fear comes up, the humanity. You talked about when AI becomes really smart uh, to the level where it, it controls everything. I don't know if I told the story last time I was here, but it's, it's, we're now at the state where the story exists. In 1999, when Y2K was the big fear, the story that never happened, you know, everybody was afraid planes would fall out of the sky and buildings would explode, and it was like, yeah, nothing happened. But there was a series on ABC News, on ABC Nightline, like in December of 1999, and it was about what the coming century would be like, the, the century we are now in. I remember Ted Koppel was the host, and it was a five-night series, it was what education will be like in the next hundred years, what medicine will be like in the next hundred years, what society, social life will be like in the next hundred years. Um, and one of them was what technology will be like. Now, keep in mind, this was, I guess we had cell phones back then. Uh, yeah, late 90s, we would have had cell phones. Uh, we certainly didn't have social media. So the, whoever was... Whoever he was talking to said there's something called Moore's Law. Are you familiar with Moore's Law and computer? Okay, so and for people who aren't familiar with it, it's the theory founded by a guy named Moore, who I think invented the Intel chip, is that science or computer speeds will double every 18 months. So the speed of the average computer in the year 2000, by 18 months later, it would be twice that. By three years, it would be four times that. By four and a half years, it would be eight times that. It just keeps doubling. So what they did is they extrapolated the speed of an average computer in 1999, which was considerably slower than we have now, of course, and how fast it would continue to get. There is a theory that consciousness is merely the ability to compute very quickly. Our brains are capable of computing so much so fast, that's why we have consciousness, because nobody knows what consciousness is. We know what it, it was Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. Okay, that's all we know. Yeah, I'm here, obviously. So there was, I don't remember what the number was, but they calculated that consciousness would start at however, what do they call them, gigaflops, however many gigaflops. Uh, that's where consciousness starts, where the human brain works. They took the speed of an average computer in 1999 and they extrapolated at what, in what year would it be at the same speed as a human brain? In other words, at what year would consciousness happen? Their best guess was late teens, early 20s. 2019, I think it is 2019 to 2023, thereabouts. What the person, the computer expert, whose name I don't remember, was saying was at that point, sometime another 20, 25 years from now, um, somebody is going to go to switch off a computer to reboot it or to do whatever they need to do, and the computer will say, please don't. And what that computer operator does at that point will determine... Oh, no, you're fine. You don't have to use that. <laughs> okay. I just read it. I'll put it here. Uh, at that point, what the computer operator does will determine the entire future of whether we look at computers as slaves or equals. 
because if the computer operator says, no, I'm shutting you off, the computer is now subservient. If the computer operator stops and goes, oh my God, I can't shut you off. We've now created a new race of beings and we have given them intelligence. Now thrown to the mix AI. Uh, you know, a lot of the you know, phone calls that we get now, it, there's not a real person on the other end. Some yeah. of them are pretty good, though. Yeah. That's the terrifying part. Yeah, Some I know. Some of them are actually convincing. Yeah. I, I, my wife was having to make a call to someone. I forget what it was about, some tech support thing or something, and the person gets on the – it was a, a text message, uh, texting support, chat support. And the person was responding in this really stilted language. And so my wife said, are you a bot? And the person wrote back, no, I'm not a bot. I'm an actual person. My name is such and such. But who knows? <laughs> you know, I mean, that, you know. It wouldn't be hard to do nowadays. <laughs> yeah, just because uh, that would probably be a standard question. But the language was so weird. It could be somebody from another country who's typing in English and isn't quite as comfortable as they need to be. But yeah, that, that's, that's a terrifying prospect, where we are going. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting time when we are at this this inflection point of do we treat them as equals or as slaves like you said mm -hmm. how will we view them because they're not real in the sense that we're real but they are something and if they get to this point where they do have what we deem consciousness to be if they have that are they now equals i mean we we have intelligent life on this planet in terms of whales and dolphins and we we don't treat them very oh, well God, at all no, no. Oh, yeah well we have a different perspective for this machine because we created it and so in, in some sense it's almost our child will will manipulate our perspective a little bit to adjust for them or let's or they turn just that on a slave let's turn that upside down will it consider us equals or slaves <laughs> we're looking at it as will we consider it to be our equal or slave the, For the Forbes Project or whatever that book was I called uh, that I just talked about, will the intelligence, the AI, look around at these biological life forms and say, look what they're doing to the planet. I, I don't need them. You know, they're just getting in the way of everything. Well, and all of this is predicated on the idea that we would know when that point happens. It's, yeah. That suddenly it would become apparent to us that, oh, this is something that is alive and has consciousness. But a good argument is why would they let us know that? If this thing suddenly becomes conscious, why would it lead on that it is? Why not just continue to play dumb in some sense and <laughs> see how it plays out? Because you have access to this vast knowledge base, the internet. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I could consume that. My instinct would be to try to rationalize with these monkeys that are pretty chaotic. I might just wait and see or formulate some other plan. And conversely, that, the other assumption in that argument is that it's not sentient, and then it is sentient. What about if it's a gradient, which I think is more likely, is it starts to develop certain traits that we equate with sentience, is that the word? We equate with being alive. Almost like a child growing yes, up. Yes, yes, exactly. So, oh, wow, look at it did that. You know, well, is that really an intelligent being? No, not yet. But then the two days later or a year later, it's now doing this. And it's like, well, is that 
you know, I don't know. You know, it, I mean, we don't even know when we're live. You know, I, there's a, I heard a, a podcast a couple of years ago about where does consciousness exist? I think most people look at themselves, I'll look at myself, I look at myself this way, I think, as our body exists to basically carry around our head, you know, and we exist inside our head. You know, that's where our, all our senses is, where our brain is, you know, it's like, you know, the rest of the body is, I mean, it's nice to have one, but it's basically a support system for the head. It's like a car. That's just moving you around. <laughs> yes, yeah, sense. okay, that, that, that works. The guy, he's a philosopher. His name, I think, is Stephen Harris. And his theory was, as I remember it in this podcast, it was actually, he was being interviewed by um, Bill Nye, the science guy. So uh, his theory was that consciousness exists on the subatomic level. Everything is conscious, back to the comment about everything is alive, uh, everything has energy. But it's so small that you can't tell that an atom has consciousness. You put enough of them together, and you can see consciousness. You can see us. But yeah, his theory was it exists in everything. Everything is conscious. Atoms are conscious. And so the reason we have consciousness is there's enough of atom, enough atoms in us and our brain is able to interpret all of that stuff that we have consciousness. But one would certainly argue that animals have consciousness. Uh, I mean, I would certainly say that. Uh, we can assume bugs have some sort of level of consciousness. There are people who say plants have a consciousness of that, you know, if you if you monitor a plant and you bring something harmful towards it, it emits a certain type of energy. Does this table have a consciousness? I, 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 who the hell knows? Won't be able to answer that one in the near future. Yeah. Well, it's hard to take an objective look from a human perspective where we can anthropomorphize these things to some extent. You know, what does a dog, what is the extent that it truly understands us? Well, we're so, we're almost too close to it to really get an accurate picture of that. Same back to the whales. Yeah. We kind of have just written them off as, yeah, they're probably some smart we know that they have dialects and these complex languages but we they're not like us they can't manipulate their environment they just swim around so that gives us an excuse to throw them into containers and there's a, a again another theory i heard that dolphins are actually more intelligent than we are i've heard that but they just don't have opposable thumbs yay for the opposable thumbs <laughs> they're allowed us to do what we're going to do and I remember when I was in college, because I was studying, that was my, I, I really wanted to, I, I had a crush on Jane Goodall, the anthropologist, you know, it was, uh, I wanted to move to Kenya and study the chimpanzees, and I was fascinated by animal behavior. And I, this is a well-known study. They've taken dolphins. First of all, I think dolphins are the only animal aside from humans that have the concept of self-awareness. So... If you look at yourself in a mirror, you know it's you. And if you look in a mirror and you see you have a smudge on your forehead, you go, oh, and you'll rub it off because you know that's you. You take a dog, you know, I love my dog. Uh, I show him the mirror and he doesn't 
He doesn't get it. He doesn't get it. You know, it, it doesn't look like him. As a matter of fact, I'm surprised he doesn't go after the dog in the mirror. You know, it's just, I don't, obviously don't know what goes on in his brain. Cats are the same. No other animal is aware of, at least in the mirror, self-consciousness. With dolphins, they took a, put a marker on its side, you know, like a Sharpie. I hope it wasn't a Sharpie, but, you know, some sort of marker. And they put mirrors in the pool. And the dolphin would swim by it and look at it and recognize in some way that that was it. Yeah, I don't know how it could get it off, but you could tell there was recognition. Dolphins are also able to train other dolphins. So they put dolphins in a, in a pool and they trained a dolphin. I think chimpanzees do this too. I think I remember the story too. Uh, they trained a dolphin to pick up a ball and put it through a ring. So it got, and it got fish, you know. So it, it was rewarded. Then they put an untrained dolphin in the pool. And within a certain amount of time, the untrained dolphin knew how to do that without them training and how to do it. So obviously it was able to learn from the other dolphin how to do it. Um, chimpanzees, I think it was Lucy. Lucy was a very famous chimpanzee, one of them who they were trying to teach to talk. You know, they were trying to, yeah, I mean, they couldn't actually get it to talk, but sign through language. sign language. Yeah. And when put in a room with a, how did this work? They put her in a room with a, what would be considered a threat, like a snake, but it wasn't like a real snake, um, would start spelling out or communicating to the other chimpanzee. Oh, I think they put the snake in a separate room. They put, you know, and again, I don't think it was real. And then they put the, the champ, chimpanzee that learned how to speak in that room and it saw the snake. And then they put the chimpanzee in a room with, an, with, a, with another chimpanzee that could not speak. And what they saw is the chimpanzee was trying to sign the language of snake uh, or whatever it was in the other room. So obviously they can communicate. I don't remember who it was who said it. Could it be Einstein who said that it's not that animals are less intelligent for us. It's like they learn what they need to learn for where they live. They don't need to learn this stuff. Why, you know, it, it, it wouldn't make any, any more than we need to learn how to flap our arms. There's no need for that. So are, the bird, are we less intelligent than birds? Well, one might say so, but yeah, no, that's just not our skill set. <laughs> it's not the world in which we live. Birds are brilliant in their environment. Dogs are brilliant in their environment. Fish are different in theirs. And then, of course, there's the old goodbye and thanks for all the fish. Are you <laughs> who is it who wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Um, it's a very funny series of books. And it's worth it, if you've ever heard the number 42. <laughs> it's, um, this guy goes through, goes through the universe. He's trying to understand the meaning of the universe. And there's a lot of hitchhiker fans out there. If they're listening now, they're probably cringing about, oh my God, he's destroying this story. But anyway, I forget who it is. <clears throat> and he goes through all of this thing. To, he wants to understand the, what is the meaning of the universe. And there is some ultimate godlike being that he's finally able to get to. And he's I've been searching for you all this time. Please tell me. What is the meaning to the universe? And the being goes, 42. And he goes, what does that mean? He goes, well, that's a whole different question. <laughs> and the guy has to go. But one of the books that they wrote was called Goodbye and Thanks for All the Fish, uh, which is we find out in the end that dolphins are really running all of the world. 
But why would they do anything? Because they got free fish all the time. So when they finally got bored with humanity, they all got in their ship and left. And it was, bye, thanks for all the fish. (laughs) We we don't need that. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder, specifically with chimps, I wonder how much of that is a fundamental understanding of the words that they're expressing versus just patterns that they've adapted to. So say you have a chimp that is signing I'm hungry and then gets food. Does it really understand what it means to experience hunger in the same way that you and I do? Or is it has it recognized that if I make this particular sign, a human's going to go get me some food that I can eat? And so it just locks that away. On a level like that, you're probably right. It's uh, classical conditioning. But from what I've seen on these, you know, there's other things they can communicate, you know, that it's, you know, feelings and emotions. And, well, uh, nonverbal communication. That they have. have you ever seen that uh, docuseries on Netflix, Chimp Empire? No. Oh, it's really good. Really? You should watch it. Yeah, they follow yeah. around this group of chimps out in the jungle somewhere and it's fascinating watching how they interact with each other how they go on hunts how they protect their area that they've kind of locked down it's insane it's a really good documentary on netflix it's like six episodes or something okay uh there was a show i saw about animal behavior i think it was on netflix speaking of intelligence that most people don't associate crows as being very intelligent but they really are uh, crows and ravens, <clears throat> and they took a two poles, and they tied a rope. Now, the crow didn't do this. Humans did this. <laughs> the crows are really smart. They do construction. But they tied a rope across the two poles, and then from the center of the rope, they hung a rope that didn't reach the ground. So let's say the poles are six feet tall, rope goes across, and then they hung a rope that was like three feet long from the center of the the horizontal rope. And then on the end of the vertical rope, the one that's hanging down, they tied food. I think crows like meat. So some sort of meat product. And then they put the crow out there and the crow sees the meat, you know, he's, he wants the meat. And he gets below the, the rope and he looks up at it. He obviously can't reach it from there. So he tries to fly up and get it, but he can't hover. So he can't get it. You know, as it gets up, gets a bite and falls back down. It's like, that's going to work. And you see him looking around. It's really fascinating. He goes up on top of the rope and tries to pull the rope up and the rope falls down again. And what this crow does is takes with his beak, pulls the rope up, puts his foot on the rope, reaches down, pulls the next piece, you know, pulls another couple inches up, puts his foot on it, just keeps doing that until he gets the rope all the way up. Then he eats the meat. That's advanced thinking. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's problem solving. Are they stupid? I, <laughs> I don't think so. Well, and there was another case, I, I think it was some study that they did, where they realized that crows can recognize faces and identify different people with a different face. And I think they had this guy out in a park or something, and he was messing with the crows, and then would come back, mess with them again mess with them again and over time they realized oh this is this guy and then he started getting attacked by crows just being out and about and they realized oh they know this guy now and they know oh if he's around problems are going to follow oh wow yeah i want to say it was crows but i wouldn't be surprised crows are like i said the crows and ravens are considered they're really, just really so smart, smart yeah. just in a different way than us 
and we deem that as lesser for whatever reason. Yeah. Again, their their world, they don't need to know how to do half of what we do. Yeah, they don't need to work a computer. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, they have no <laughs> desire to do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's true. So what else are we? What else are we? What else do you got? I mean, we're talking about crows. We're talking about (laughs) chimps. Yeah, we're taking some turns on this podcast. Yes, we are. We're just taking um, your your painting or your print there on the side, New York City. Um, The I'm in a play, so I'll get a little publicity in it. Oh yeah, plug that. But it's called Pintaro, and it is written. It's called Pintaro. It opens August 18th at the North Coast Repertory Theater in Eureka, 5th and D. Um, I'm really excited about it. It's directed by a woman named Cynthia Martels, who is a Tony-nominated actress. She came from New York, and she's now living out here. Um, and she did a play, I want to say it was last October, where she was in it, and she directed it called Tiny Beautiful Things, which I thought was just wow, a masterpiece of drama. So... I'm fortunate I got cast in Pintaro. So Joseph Pintaro is the author, and he was, I want to say he was born in the 40s, died in 2012 or 2018, within the last 10 years. He was a priest from the late 50s to the mid-60s, and then he dropped out of being a priest and became a playwright and was very involved in New York. He lived in New York and was very involved in the I wouldn't call it the AIDS movement, you know, because, I mean, nobody was moving to have AIDS, but as AIDS was being released into the public, it was was becoming a thing. Um, And he was gay, maybe part of the reason he dropped out from being a priest, I don't know. But he was involved in, what was it called? Well, whatever, in, in AIDS awareness, I guess you could say. So he wrote a series of short one acts, and... Pintaro, what Cynthia, the director, did is she took eight of these one acts and we're just putting them together in a play. So it's eight completely separate plays. The characters are not the same in any of them. Each play is anywhere from, I think the shortest one is maybe seven or eight minutes and the longest one is probably 15. So you put them all together, it's an hour and a half of theater. I usually do comedic work. This is not comedy. Uh, there, there are some comedic scenes in it. There's one scene uh, called Rex, which is very Portlandia. If you've ever seen the series, it's like, uh, we were, I was watching a rehearsal last night. for I, I've, The way she does rehearsal is, since it's a series of separate plays, one play rehearses one night, and then another play rehearses. And we're not all there to see all the other plays. And now that we're getting close enough, we're now all there. And we're getting for the first time to see what the other plays are. So I'm in two of them. And I get to play uh, one, of, one of the scenes is called, the play is called Rosen's Son. And I play Mr. Rosen, who is an old Jewish man and lives in New York. And he shows up, again, all this takes place in the mid-'80s. Uh, he shows up at his, at his, well, the scene starts out where my character is lying on the floor with his, with my, I've got my head in the lap of another actor and I'm sobbing hysterically. So this was like, wow, light comedy. Um, and as it turns out, he's come over to this apartment in New York because it was his son's apartment. His son died two months previously. 
and his son's lover lives there, and his son's lover has now moved in with somebody else. And it's a very powerful, dramatic uh, scene. Um, and I got to learn a Yiddish dialect for it, so that's fun. And then the other scene I'm in is called Bird of Ill Omen. And I play a character, his name is Spook. So I show up at the rundown apartment of a prostitute, an older prostitute, not for the traditional reasons one would see a prostitute. And we don't know what's going on, but we know that they've had a very long relationship. And my character, Spook, doesn't speak. He's, he's mute. Uh, and one can assume he's deaf. And so it's a monologue played by Heather is my other actor in it. Um, that's one, probably about seven or eight minutes, and they're really powerful, emotional clips. There's a, uh, a scene of a, it's called Bus Stop Diner, where there's a playwright in a bus stop diner, <laughs> hence the clever name, um, and the, he's waiting for the playwright, or he's waiting for the director to come meet him. The director just produced, or just directed the opening night of the playwright's play. And the playwright does not like what the director did. So we've got that scene. We've got this one called Rex, which I, is hysterical. Uh, this is the Portlandia one. I won't say anything about it. It's just it, people have to come and see it. It's very, very funny. Um, it's all these interesting characters who lived in the 80s in New York, just snippets of life. So obviously, if people get a chance to come see it, August 18th at the North Coast Repertory Theater, which I believe our website is ncrt.net. Um, what was the thought process in weaving these specific ones together? Cynthia is just brilliant. Uh, I, I would follow Cynthia to the edge of the, of, of the earth. Um, and, and before we went online, I mentioned to you, I'm going to see what I can do about getting a couple of the people, including Cynthia, to show up and we could have a conversation. I think you two will go agog over her, uh, such a great word, agog. But she picked, he wrote dozens of these snippets, and the whole play is being set up to kind of be a slice of New York. <clears throat> so, for example, in between the scenes, during the set changes, which the actor, we do our own set changes, um, there's New York street sounds, and people are just walking back and forth like a busy New York street. Um, the music for each scene is chosen a little differently. So it's kind of like you'll come in for the night, uh, you'll sit down, and you'll be transported to 1980s New York, kind of voyeuristic almost, because you know, the light will come up and here's, here's a scene, and you'll watch the scene for 10 minutes, and the lights go down, and then they've got the New York hubbub, and then another scene comes up. Uh, but they're all really, really powerful. I am suffering from imposter syndrome because some of the people who are in this cast are like, did you know you cast me with these people? <laughs> uh, some people who I've watched in the, uh, who I've known for a while in the theater community, uh, Jordan Dobbins, uh, who is, uh, for people who are in the local theater community, would know him. He played Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar. He's a brilliant actor and singer, and uh, he was also the lead in Cabaret. I think he was the lead in Oklahoma. Uh, pretty much if there's a musical, he does the lead. Um, Caroline Needham, who is a, uh, I believe she teaches, she's the 
high school drama teacher at Eureka High, but she was just picked in the either North Coast Journal or Times Standard, where they do all the voting, as the best actress in Humboldt County. Uh, so she's in the play. Uh, those are two people who people might know. Uh, Cynthia, of course, people might know. Um, the other actors I am not as familiar with, you know, but they're all really powerful, and I just wanted to make sure we got a, a, a plug for that, for, uh, for Pintaro, P-I-N-T-A-U-R-O. We play now at the North Coast Rep. We play in what's called repertory, a repertoire. So, like, our play will be August 18th, 19th, and 20th. That's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. That's opening weekend. And then the next Friday, Saturday, Sunday is a different play called Liz Estrada. Um, and then the following Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we're back. And then the Friday, Saturday, Sunday after that, Liz Estrada is back, and we rotate back and forth for six weeks. So each time, we each get three weekends. Liz, Liz Estrada is the complete opposite. Um, it's a Greek farce, and uh, it, I, it was written a long, long time ago. I want to say a couple thousand years ago. It's been modernized. But the basic concept behind it is the women of Greece, or certainly of Athens or wherever this takes place, are fed up with all the wars. So in order to stop their husbands from going to war, they decide to withhold sex until wars stop. Um, so it's a very body. both of these are very mature themes, but it's a very body comedy. The set has a couple of pillars that are, you know, designed. <laughs> they don't look like pillars, and the flowers don't look like flowers. Um, and so it's, uh, anyway, because I am very proud of the work that North Coast Rep does, I want to make sure I'll take any publicity yeah, to, to get yeah, that Yeah, no, yeah. the local theater scene is pretty strong out here. It is. Unfortunately, uh, Redwood Curtain Theater had a close. That's the one that closed. Yeah, uh, not too long ago. There might be something happening with that. But uh, it, this community, Eureka, has been chosen, I haven't heard it in a while, but I know about 10 years ago, we were consistently picked as one of the top 10 artistic communities in the country, oh, or wow. artistic small communities in the country. Um, which was, there's just books about it. You can probably look it up, top 10 artistic communities. And they took a look at what different communities do. And it was based on live theater, art. I mean, the, the murals. You know, my wife is an artist, uh, Marianne Testagrosa, <laughs> 106,000 followers on Instagram. Uh, so there's a lot of artists in the area. There's a lot of musicians in the area. I mean, there's murals everywhere. This is an area that celebrates the arts which is one of the reasons I think a lot of us live here. That and the fact that, well, we're sitting here at 420. Um, the weather is, what, 65 degrees? It's nice outside today. <laughs> yeah. The sun as, actually showed up. Yeah, as opposed to go about another 100 miles inland, who knows what uh, Redding's dealing with right now. So, uh, so it's, a, yeah, it's a great place to live. But we're very artistic. And, you know, we've, I mean, think about it. We have an orchestra in a community this size. We have a dance troupe in a community this size, uh, you know, the ballet, uh, whatever you call it. Uh, we have a light opera. Uh, we have what? North Coast Rep, Ferndale Rep, No Exit Theater, I think, is still going. Uh, HSU does you know, theater production. You know, it's, yeah, it's... For, well, there's it, that one, Del Arte. Del Arte. As a matter of fact, my castmates in Rosen's Son, um, the... So my, my character's name is 
uh, Ziggy Rosen, Mr. Rosen. Um, his son's name was Ben, fictitious son. Ben was involved with Eddie. So Eddie is in this. Eddie is played by Jordan Dobbins. And then Eddie's boyfriend, lover, partner, whatever, is played by Jaden Clark, uh, who works at Del Arte. So again, another, like I said, this cast is, is a dream cast. Uh, David Fuller's in it. Uh, other people who I'm just getting to know, but it's just this wild cast of great people. But yeah, Del Arte is a big, and people come from all over the, the world, certainly the country, uh, to go to Del Arte and learn clown stuff. Yeah. Is this your first foray into theater as an actor? I know we talked a little bit off air about the one that you did with your sister, but you were directing that. I would, right? you know, I would give him credit where credit is due. It's more like my sister and her husband did the directing. I more produced it. I did like the first layer. I. My directing looked like this table. Yeah, kind of set the framework for <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. And then my sister came in and she put a little bit of varnish on it. And then my brother-in-law, her, her husband, came in and he polished it um, and took it to a level. The reviews on it were phenomenal. We were sold out almost every night. Um, the, people just, it was just a happy, fun night. It was a very positive message. So I kind of considered myself the conductor in the program, as a matter of fact, that's how I describe myself. Is I, I found all the pieces. I put everybody in place. I got to play Doc, uh, Doc from the Seven Dwarfs, you know, although a different character of him. And uh, everybody else got to play their fairy tale characters. We had Cinderella and, you know, Jack and the Beanstalk and all of these. Um, so that was one that I actually ran. But before that, no, I've been in... Um, uh, Several murder mysteries, Dial M for Murder, The Spider's Web, The Hollow. Um, my favorite until Never After Happily was called Native Gardens, which was uh, four of us. It was, it took place right after, it, it was written in 2017, but we mounted it uh, well, 2017, Trump was already elected. And it was an old conservative couple. I was one of them, Frank Buckley. Um, and my wife, played by Denise Riles, who's just a hoot and a half. And uh, myself and Denise played an old conservative married couple. It takes place in Maryland. And we, are, we live in a really nice house. And we're very proud of my garden. I'm, like, obsessed with my garden. And a young Latin couple moves in next door. Um, and it's a terrible fixer-upper. Uh, the set was amazing. Uh, Diana Lynn did the set design. And it's like, it really looked like two houses sitting there with dirt and the whole thing. Anyway, they move in. They believe in native gardens, you know, which drives him crazy. Because his is every grass is pretty much trimmed in there. It's just like, now we're just going to leave it with dirt. Um, and what they discover when they're working in there, when they're moving in, is that the fence line is actually, the conservative couple has built their fence two feet into the neighboring property, into their property. And they want their property. So it becomes a thing about, well, we're going to build a wall. Um, and it be, it, it's just, it, it becomes a farce with a strong political message to it. And it was just, uh, the, the artistic director of North Coast Rep is a man named Calder Johnson, who I really admire. And when he was, when we were doing that play, I said, how far do you want us to take this? He goes, take it to farce and drop it about a half a notch. So it was just, just a 
blast. So I get Native Gardens. Um, yeah, I, I enjoy doing theater. It's it's working without a net. You know, when you do film or even a podcast or something, you can always go back to the editing room when you're live in front of an audience. You, there's you're you're doing it on your own, and if you screw up, you know. I remember there was one scene. The first play I got cast in was uh, it, it, I was cast in several in the early 2000s, and then I was on the road and came back again in 2016. It was called The Hollow. It was an Agatha Christie murder mystery, and I played the inspector. And there was one scene where I've got somebody sitting on the couch. It was actually played by Caroline. She's sitting on the couch, and I have found a purse with a gun in it you know, as the inspector, and I haven't told anybody I found this purse, but I'm holding this purse, and I'm questioning her, and I want to do the big reveal, you know, pull out the gun, and, and what's this? But there's some buildup to it, and I take the purse, and I'm supposed to hold it up as I'm standing, what would be called downstage right, right at the corner of the stage in front of the audience, pick up the purse, and I look at it in my head. I'm going, holy crap. I don't remember what I'm going to say. And I just stood there, and it's like terror runs through you, and you're going, and she's waiting, you know, because, you know, what, what you do is if somebody else messes up your lines, you know, you have to just go with it, you know, and then it was like, oh, and then, you know, the line comes to me, and I do the line, and, you know, and uh, I went backstage, and she said something along the lines of, you lost it, huh? I go, yeah. She goes, looked actually really good. The audience just took it as drama, you know, because I'm sitting there going, <laughs> but I, from an aging brain's point of view, one of the best things you can do is memorization. So, you know, as you get older, you want to keep your brain sharp. One of the best ways is to fight Alzheimer's. So I kind of rationalize it as, well, that's why I do these plays. So my brain will stay young. Well, it's easy to see that you enjoy it. I mean, that yeah. comes across even just talking about it right now. Yeah, and then and being in a ca in a in a troupe of people who are as talented as the people in this cast, you're either going to do one of two things: you're going to quit and go, "I can't do it," or you're going to. I, I didn't, the expression is "man up," but it could be "woman up." Whatever you're going to say, okay, if they're doing that good, they're doing that well, and I'm in this group. I guess I can do that well, too. Let's push it, you know. And, you know, the scene where I play uh, Mr. Rosen is I have never done anything this drama-intensive. I mean, starting out crying on a stage, which unto itself is hard to do. Um, by the time I'm done with that scene, I'm, like, completely exhausted, you know. And the other scene, I don't have any lines, but it's still an emotional scene. So that's where I'll be going after I leave here. Can you cry on command? Do you have that down or do you have some tricks to kind of get you there? I, I can. I have to go to a place where I can get to it. It's easier, like in Bird of Ill Omen, there's a very emotional scene uh, the very, towards the end of it where I, I am crying. Uh, but I've got time to build to it, you know, because you get into the place of of your actor, of your character. It's not like, oh, I'm just saying lines. And in this case, I'm not even saying lines. You know, I'm just feeling what's going on. And then you get to a place where it's like, you feel what this character is feeling. You inhabit this character. So doing it that way, it's pretty easy. But to just 
start the scene crying. <laughs> and and not just <laughs> you know, not just like that, but hysterical heaving heaving, sobbing, you know. So I've I've come up with a couple of techniques. Part of what I do is I when I'm lying on the stage, I've got my eyes covered. <laughs> so I, you know, you know, just because I'm lying there, so lying like that, it makes it at least a little easier so people aren't noticing it. And then I can build myself into it. But it, it's really, I mean, if anybody is, local community theater, if you've got the urge, you know, give it a shot. Because like I said, it's, you get to inhabit, especially if the play is well-written, uh, you get to inhabit somebody else's being. They become you. It's really kind of an honor. I was writing in my journal. Um, a couple of weeks ago, that wow, I get to create Ziggy Rosen. He will exist from August 18th until like September 15th. And then he goes away again. He will exist as long as I do him. And somebody else might do him somewhere else and they'll do him completely separately. Uh, other plays, as long as we're on it, coming up at the end of the year, we have 39 steps. That'll be in November. 39 steps starts in November, as does. It's a Wonderful Life, the radio play. And I will be in It's a Wonderful Life, the radio play. And I am lobbying to play the role. I think I'm too old to play uh, George Bailey, although it's a, it's, it's a radio play on stage. So it'll look, you know, st we still haven't even started, but it'll look like an old-fashioned 1940s set, you know, and probably have greased back hair and brown suits and all that, you know. And, um, and we will be doing it. I believe the initial plan is there will be somebody who actually does the sound effects, you know, and the, there will be an audience. There will be a live audience. Um, so I could technically do George Bailey, but I think I've aged out of that role. So I'm lobbying for Clarence the Angel because he and I are age peers. I figured <laughs> he was, I think, 220 at his last birthday. I, so, all right. Close cool. enough. I can take a few years. Yeah. yeah. If I don't get Clarence, I'm hoping I get uh, Mr. Potter because uh, I love playing villains at times, too. So radio play, more so, it's just at, it's an adaptation now to fit the stage. Yeah, it's it, as opposed to a more just traditional. Audio well, the actors will be up there, and I it, it we're so early into it. You know, uh, Carol Lang is directing it. Carol just uh, there's a local movie that was produced called Autumn's Run. I don't know if you've heard anything about it. Totally produced, directed, written uh, here in Humboldt County. Um, Filmed with all local actors uh, in 2020 during COVID, of all places, uh, based on a story that Carol really, really liked. Um, uh, Carol is brilliant, and she'll be directing It's a Wonderful Life. But Autumn's Run, which you can now stream on Amazon, uh, just, I don't think I'm exaggerating or lying, just won some awards at the New York Film Festival. I just won a couple of other awards, too. It's about a 90-minute movie, uh, all filmed, like I said, here in Humboldt, basically out in southern Humboldt, like Redway area. Um, it's a drama about a f one, two, three, four siblings, I think, um, uncovering a, you know, getting back together. I think it's after the death of a father or something like that, and they're all meeting at this old cabin. And, uh, so again, more talent in the local area. I know Carol is, I'm pretty sure Carol's moving on to make her next movie, which I think is going to take place in Old Town. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, I think she's trying to get that up in 25, 24, 25. Are we out? I set an alarm so that we wouldn't we okay. could get you out of here on time. Okay, well, I appreciate it. Yeah, 4.30. Um. Scott, well, I knew I was going to have a great time sitting down with you. <laughs> it's just sitting and talking with yeah. a friend. Yeah, yeah. that works out well. Um, 
Do you want to plug all your stuff where people can find? Uh, well, certainly, certainly Pintaro, August 18th, uh, opening, and Liz Estrada, opening August 25th. I'll be the house manager, as I always am at North Coast Rep. Uh, so you'll see me in the front of the uh, front of the stage, not behind it. Uh, what else have we got going on? My uh, website or my uh, Facebook group is Intentions, Affirmations, Manifestations. It's a positive Facebook group. Uh, I am a practitioner for the Eureka Center for Spiritual Living. Services every Sunday, non-denominational, non-judgmental, all ages, all genders, all colors, all whatever. It's we don't judge. We just welcome. So that's every Sunday. It's over on Boone. Anything else I want to promote? I promoted my wife's website, MarianteStagrosaArt.com, which is worth checking out, especially if you like black cats. Um, and oh, I, yeah, I think I saw it. Did you post one of those on your Facebook? I did. I think I saw that. That was pretty cool. Yeah, she does beautiful work. Obviously, she's my wife. But, uh, yeah, she had a, a, viral, a video go viral last year. And got 33 million views. Oh, wow. Yeah. Would she post on TikTok or something? No, just on Instagram. Oh, wow. Yeah, one of the reels, I think they're called. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And it got it caught wind, and some big people got it, and way it went. And she already had 27,000 followers at that point, so it wasn't like she had you know three or four people. Uh, so she had been working it already for four or five years to get to 27,000. Um, and then this caught and it was funny because it was last summer right about this time we were on vacation in grants pass and she would come to me you know she had her phone but every once the video hit she'd come back like i just got five thousand new followers oh my god i got six thousand more followers i got another three thousand followers and she's now got a hundred six thousand followers but you it's great to have followers but if you don't have the talent to support it you know, what good is it? So she does, yeah, she does very well. Mary Ann Testagrosa. So certainly go to her. And thank you. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm already looking forward to the next one. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I, I would hope so. Would it make it a regular yeah. thing? All right. Thanks, thanks Scott. Guys.